Check, 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 check. Hey, Rob, can you make sure, where'd you go? Can you make sure that I'm not in the monitors? It sounds like I might be in the monitors on this channel. Check. How's everybody doing? Good. Welcome to uh, our church, Livingstone Calvary Chapel. I'm glad that you're here with us. Check, check. That's better. Are the rest of the channels muted? Should just turn the monitors down on the mains there. Just bring them out completely. There you go. Anyway, welcome this morning to Livingstone Calvary Chapel. I'm glad that you guys are here with us and we get to be outside. A little bit of uh, clouds this morning, but man, we've been gifted with some beautiful weather for probably maybe our last service outside of this year. I have a couple announcements, but if you want to turn and open your Bible with me to Genesis chapter 11, that's where we're going to be at this morning as we continue on. Genesis chapter 11, and then we'll, we'll uh, be going from there on through chapter 12 today. But in your bulletin, if you got one, um, just a first of all, a thank you to everybody who donated supplies to our preschool ministry. Um, this is going to bug me. Might have to, might have to change mics. We'll see how it works out. Anyway, uh, thanks for everybody who donated to the preschool ministry. It's up and going. Last week was uh, a pretty cool week, our first full week in the preschool, and uh, we have expanded classroom sizes this year, and lots of new kids, and um, lots of ministry opportunities. So, in addition to thank you for your donation, please keep Christina and um, Robin and um, Pam and uh, the other staff that are involved. Uh, with our, our preschool ministry, Sharon is involved with that as well. And as they continue to minister to the kids, uh, it's five days a week, um, half a day, uh, and it'll go for 10 months. So a lot of opportunity there. Also, our children's ministry is in need of a preschool. I'm going to switch this out, guys. I'm going to try to grab a mic, Rob. Do you want to help him out there? Okay. Go ahead and mute this channel. Give me a second so that we're not distracted. Go ahead and mute this channel. Improvise. Sean. Sean. Are I, you there, Sean? I am. <laughs> it is your servant. <laughs> check, check. There we go. <laughs> check. Is that is that better? No no wind in there. Yay. All right, um, our children's ministry is still in need, guys, of uh, a preschool teacher position. It's the one that Ed and Connie have been doing for several years now. Uh, they're asking for a break, and we want to honor them that. We're, we're asking if you could sign up for a few months to do this. And Shonda is in the children's ministry. Uh, you can talk to her. Christina, will you raise your hand also? If you, Christina's on the children's ministry team as well. So if, you would, if you're interested in doing that, guys, this is the third week we've um, announced it, and we're coming to the place where Ed and Connie are going to be stepping out at the end of this. This is our last Sunday. So um, if, if you've been praying about it and God's kind of put on your heart maybe to help out with the children's ministry, uh, these are the littler guys, so uh, uh, please let us know. Uh, thanks. All right, Genesis chapter 11. We are in verse... We're going to be in verse 10. We're going to make it all the way through the rest of this chapter and chapter 12 this morning. So, lofty goals, but um, uh, there's some cool things in here. And as we begin this chapter, um, I, or as we continue on through this chapter, I want to point out to you that last week we made it, as we made it through the first nine verses, if you remember, we read about um, uh, the rebellion of mankind. Man who, uh, at this particular time in, in, in the history of the earth, the man decided to, to, to dwell, to, to take a place 
of, of sitting. If you remember how we broke that word down last week and we talked about it, how they traveled east and, and they came to the land of Shinar and they, they decided that this was a good place for them. They didn't need to go any further. So they dwelt there. They took a, a sitting position really in this, this kind of this idea of taking um, a, a, an authoritarian role over their own lives. And, and they, they, they came to the land, they sat there, and they did this rather than continuing to spread out over the face of the earth and fill it like God had commanded them to do so. But in doing so, we know that man um, organized themselves together against God, that they had unity in a way that wasn't glorifying or edifying because they, they had unity against God as they set to build for themselves a tower in the city of Babel. And it says specifically, as we read last week, that they did so in order to make a name for themselves. But God intervened, and God took action, and he did so in regards to coming against man's rebellion, and he confused their language, it says. He confused their language so that they could not understand one speech. And in doing so, God then scattered them over the face of all of the earth. Now, when we studied through these first nine verses, I pointed out how God's intervention, how God intervened into the lives of men at this point, it, we, it was an act of judgment, and it is God came in and, and, and judged what man was doing and, and acted in that. But God's judgment in this sense, or God's intervention in this sense, was really an act of God's grace and, a, and an act of God's mercy. Considering he had spared the lives of those, number one, who had rebelled against him, and, and we had read in the previous chapters that when man had rebelled against God, when there was violence that had filled the earth and evil that was continually in the hearts of man and in the in that their minds were always set upon these things we know that god destroyed the earth with a global flood he wiped out all the people on the earth except for noah and his family and the animals that noah brought upon the ark that god had commanded him to do so but yet god at this time showed grace when man rebelled against him and he gave them this this chance to return to him as he spared their lives and he still, in doing so, in this act of grace and mercy, he still brought forth his will by confusing their language and scattering them from Babel throughout all of the earth. That's what God had originally commanded and instructed man to do. And in light of this, what we've seen and what, we, we, what we're focusing on as we continue this chapter is, is how the failings and the rebellious acts of men cannot divert the will, the plans, or the purposes of God. Furthermore, it reminds us that God exercises his own sovereign authority over all of creation in order to bring forth his plans into our world and into our lives individually. That God works in, in, in a worldwide way, bringing forth his plans and his purposes, but he also does so individually as God is concerned and interested and intervenes in our lives in a personal way. Remember, Proverbs 16, 9 kind of speaks of these things, saying, it says, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. And I find great comfort in that as a believer, because lots of times as I plan my way, I don't want to go my own way. I want my ways to line up with God's ways. And, and, and there's an assurance there that, you know, in our heart, we may plan our ways, but God establishes our steps. You know, in the New Testament, one of the things that Paul talks about is, is that Paul says, God sets an open door before us. And a lot of times people will counsel with me and they'll, they'll want to know, how do I know this is God's will? And one of the sure ways of knowing that God's will is, is this, this understanding that he's establishing your steps, that he's opening the doors for you to walk through. It's just our job to take those steps, to walk as, as God goes. Also in Proverbs 19, Verse 21, it tells us that many are the plans in the heart, in man's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. And these truths that we read here, alongside the fact that God's grace, and I love this, alongside the fact that God's grace is bigger than our sin, you know what, these things should comfort us. I find comfort in them considering we've all rebelled, considering that I've rebelled against God. And, 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 and in doing so, when I've rebelled against God, it's been because I've had my own ideas, my own plans, my own purposes, my own will. And I've derived these plans and I've ended up in a place many times that was not so good for me. 
And in that time, when we're in this place where we've derived our own plans and we realize, man, this isn't good. In those times, I think it's normal for us to wonder if we've messed things up so bad that we've missed out on God's plans for our lives. I've been there. I've thought that. And as I read these things and studied these chapters, it's assurance to me again that the sinfulness of man, the rebellion of man, the mistakes, the shortcomings, our failures cannot divert the purposes and the will of God for our lives. But I'm here to tell you in those times of brokenness and as times of repentance we should remember the words of Paul in Romans chapter 5 verse 20 who said but where sin increased grace increased all the more and in the remaining verses of these chapters this is what we continue to see we continue to see these same truths being revealed and as we read on in verse 10 we kind of transition now into this genealogy and it says in verse 10 it says this is the genealogy of Shem Shem was 100 years old and he begot, he begot Arphaxad two years after the flood Arphaxad it says lived 35 years and begot Selah and after he begot Selah, Arphaxad lived 403 years and begot sons and daughters. Selah lived 30 years and begot Eber. And he begot Eber. And after he begot Eber, Selah lived 403 years and begot sons and daughters. Eber lived, it says in verse 16, 34 years and begot Peleg. After he begot Peleg, Eber lived 430 years and begot sons and daughters. Well, Peleg lived 30 years and begot Reu, and after he begot Reu, Peleg lived three or two hundred and nine years and begot sons and daughters. And Reu lived thirty-two years and begot Serug. And after he begot Serug, Reu lived two hundred and seven years and begot sons and daughters. Serug lived thirty years and begot Nahor. And after he begot Nahor, Serug lived two hundred years and begot sons and daughters. Nahor lived twenty-nine years and begot Terah. And after he begot Terah, Nahor lived 119 years and begot sons and daughters. Now, Terah lived 70 years, and he begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And this is the genealogy, verse 27, of Terah. Terah begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran begot Lot. We all know Lot, right? And Haran died before his father, Terah, in his native land in Ur of the Chaldeans. Then Abraham and Naor, they took wives, and the names of Abraham's wife was Sarai, and the name of Naor's wife was uh, Milcah, and the daughters of Haran, and the father of Milcah, and the father of Ishka. But Sarai was barren. She had no children. And Terah took his son Abraham and his grandson Lot, the son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, his son Abraham's wife, and they went out with them from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. And they came to Haran and dwelt there. So the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Let's pray. Father, as we're outside this morning, enjoying the breeze and the sunshine and even the shade as we rest and trust in you, God, for everything that you provide and in every way that you lead, I pray, God, that you would give us understanding into your word that you would teach us by your holy spirit father i know that you have things to say to us today and that when we call out to you god in prayer that you hear us and that you answer us god by intervening into our lives on a daily basis i pray lord that if there's anyone here who feels like they're in a dry time that they're experiencing a desert moment lord where they feel um far from you. I pray, God, that you would speak to them again this morning and that you would draw them near to you, that they would remember, Lord, but that you're, you're always by their side, that they can trust in you no matter what they're going through. Father, I pray that um, you would help us to have faith like Abram. Lord, that where you call us, we would go. And what you ask us to do, Father, that we would do it trusting that you know best. Lord, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Now, if you consider the context of this chapter, 
and the things that we reviewed and then picking back up here in verses 10 through 32, it seems a little bit odd that we would be moving from this account of when God had scattered man, that we would now move to this transition back to the descendants of Shem and of the family tree of, of, of Abram. Yet what we see in these verses is that God's drawing our attention from the whole of mankind or from the whole of, of, of created man, and he's taken our attention and he's focusing it in on one particular family. And he's doing this because we know that through this family, through the, through the lineage of Abram, who will be later known as Abraham, we know that this family and through him that the Messiah would come to us and that God's plan of salvation would, be, um, would come to pass. And, and through this genealogy of Shem, which we read in these verses, we're directed to God's perfect and to God's gracious plan to save men from not only our, our, our own evil hearts, but from the consequences, more specifically, of, of our sin and of our own rebellion. But as we continue on, I don't want to go through all of these verses and really break them down. I want to focus in on one verse, verse 31, if you look there with me. Because in verse 31, what we're being told is we're told that Abraham's father, Terah, took Abram along with his grandson, Lot, and they left Ur of the Chaldeans. And they did so to go to the land of Canaan, which we know would be later called or referred to, and still is today, as the promised land. The land which God would give to the Hebrew people. But at the end of this verse, we see, if you, if you notice there, there's a, a, a little notation that, that needs to have our attention. We see that, that Terah made it as far as Haran. And it says that he dwelt there until his death. And if, we, if, you, if you go to any of your maps, perhaps that you have in the back of your Bible, and you study up the geography of, of this in regards to where Haran is, what you come to realize is that Haran is a city that lied outside of the land of Canaan, right on the border. Literally on the other side of the Euphrates River. And Terah, what we see by this, is he never crossed into the land of Canaan, even though he had set out to enter into it. In light of this, I should also point out to you that, that Terah's name means delay. His name means to loiter. And, and the picture that's being illustrated by all of this is that by, by living his life on this border city, the city of Haran, we see that Terah's delay really prevented him from stepping into the fullness of God's will for his life. In Joshua chapter 24, verse 2, Terah is again mentioned, and in, and in this he's, he's, he's mentioned by name, and he's presented in the, the book of Joshua in that verse in an unfavorable light, saying that he dwelt on the other side of the river Euphrates, and he worshipped other gods. And when we get to chapter 12, in just a little bit, we'll see that, that God called Abram out of this country, out of Ur of the land of the Chaldeans, out of Haran. And he called him, and so doing, he asked him, he commanded him, called him to leave his family, to leave his father's house, in order to enter the land of Canaan. And because Abram's faith in God, which was demonstrated through his obedience, we know that he also in turn entered into the promises that God had spoken to him. And we know that Abram received abundant blessings. In light of this, we need to see the value this morning. We need to see the value of living in the place of God's will. To see the value of living in the place of God's will. Because if our relationship with God is one where we are constantly lingering on the edge or delaying in crossing over into the place that God desires to take us, we too can miss out on the fullness of the promises and blessings that are attached to the commands that God calls us to. This is why the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, having declared this fact that you and I are saved by grace 
through faith in Jesus. He also went on to say after that in verse 10, he said, We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. See, God has a plan for our lives. He has a purpose for our lives. And the point is, is even though God's plans and God's purposes cannot be deterred by man's sin and man's rebellion, God graciously, mercifully invites us to be a part of his plans. And he invites us to live in obedience to his will because clearly this is the place of greatest reward. And in chapter 12, we will read of how God called Abraham, the son of Terah, the descendants of Seth, to be a part of his plan, to live in obedience to his will. And if you look there with me in verse 1 of chapter 12, we read on and it says, And now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. And you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. So as we read this and we see that now that our attention is directed away from the whole of mankind and put on this one family of God, I want to point out to you that the vast majority of the rest of the Bible's focus is on this one chosen family. Have you ever thought about it like that? The rest of the Bible's focus is really upon this one family. The descendants of Abraham, the Hebrew people who make up the nation of Israel. And the main reason for this is that through them and through the covenants that God had established with them, all of mankind is directed to the Savior. And not only are we directed to our Savior through the Hebrew people and through the covenants that God made with them also revealed to us is our need for a savior. Furthermore, through the history of the record or the recorded history of the Hebrew people, the Holy Spirit is really taking us on a journey. He's taking us on a path through time that will lead ultimately to the coming of the Messiah. The one whom God had promised to send to Adam and Eve after they had sinned. The one who would crush the head of Satan as God had promised. The one who would take away the sins of the world. The one who would conquer death. And the one who would restore a separated and fallen creation back to its creator. So when we read and study the biblical accounts of God's chosen people, what is made known to us is the will of God. What is revealed to us is the nature of God as it is relevant to us and the greatness of God's love for us in these ways are expressed multiple times. But we must keep in mind that what the Bible teaches us about our God and about his will for our lives, guys, listen to this. What the Bible teaches us about our God and about his will for our lives is secondary to the revelation of God's plan and promise to redeem us. That's the pinnacle. This is the foremost. And this is due to the fact that every single person's primary need in life is to be justified. Our greatest need is to be declared righteous by God and to be reconciled to him through a faith in Jesus Christ, who is, by the way, the only begotten Son of God who was crucified on a cross as a payment for our sins. And we know that having conquered death, having conquered sin, that Jesus rose again three days later and showed himself to be alive. And without this, nothing else matters. Not relationships with people, not good or bad health, not wealth or poverty, not happiness or sorrows, not success or failure. Because without God's plan of redemption and without the forgiveness and justification that it brings for those who put their faith in Jesus, every person would die and spend eternity in hell. Remember, in Matthew chapter 16, verse 26, Jesus said it like this. He said, What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world, yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give 
in exchange for his soul. And so as we see the importance of the path that we're being taken down, we see the reason why God now focuses us in on the path that leads to the Messiah. And we see that God had a plan through this to save us. And with this in the, in the front of our minds, we read in verses 1 and 3 really how God moved his plan of salvation forward by calling Abraham to follow him, saying, come. Calling him out of the land of Ur, where pagan worship reigned, to go to a land that God, he said, would show him. And in doing so, God called Abraham literally to take a step of faith. And we read in the book of Hebrews that Abraham was justified because of faith. To take the step of faith by leaving his family, by leaving his friends, by leaving his home. Believing by leaving everything that was familiar and secure to him behind in order to let God be his everything, his all in all. But whether we realize it or not, this is the exact same thing that God asks of each one of us, is it not? In other words, God's called us into the same kind of faith-based relationship with him through his son Jesus when he's called us and asked us and said, come, follow me. But being called is only part of what God spoke to Abram in these verses, if you noticed it with me. And if you look to verses 2 and 3, we see that when God called Abram to follow him, to leave his life behind him, to leave his life behind, God also spoke promises of blessing. And in doing so, God told Abraham that he would make him a great nation. That he would bless those who bless him and curse those who curse him. And in other words, through this, God was telling Abraham that if he were to follow him, if he was to take this step of faith and go to the place that God would take him, God promised Abraham that he would make him great. That he would provide for him and that he would protect him. And just a little side note is God promised to make him great, to bore, to, 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 to born a nation through him. We need to keep in mind that when Abraham was called by God, if you do the math, he was already 75 years old. And not only that, we read back in chapter 11 that he was married to a woman by the name of Sarai who was unable to have children. His brothers, his father, and his grandfather all had children. But Sarah, it says, were, was different. She was barren. But nevertheless, God made these promises to Abraham, to Abram. But the thing that I want us to see in light of these promises, in light of these, in light of these promises of blessing that God spoke to Abram, is that God also speaks the same kind of promises to us. To those of us whom he has called to follow him. And God speaks these same kinds of promises of blessings. And in if you, if, you, if you look or if you want to remember with me in Matthew chapter 33, God says to those of us in regards to his promises, in regards to his provision, in light of those whom he calls, he says this simply, he says, Seek first the kingdom of God and my righteousness. And he says, And all of these things shall be added to you. And we know in the verses previous to that that God speaks about provision and he speaks about pr protection, how God will provide houses and food and clothing. Every one of our needs. And he says, don't be anxious for those things. Don't worry about those things. Because I've promised to provide these things to you and for you. He said, just seek me and my righteousness. Now, one of the things that comes to mind in light of God calling Abram is this question of why. Why? Why did God call Abram? Why was Abram different? What did Abram do to deserve God's favor, to deserve God's promise of blessing? And these questions come to mind, at least in mind, because I think that we have all looked at ourselves and seen what God has called us to and seen what God has done for us and have asked these same kind of questions. Why me? Why did God call me? What have I done to deserve his favor and this promise of his blessings? But when I read these verses about Abram, I see no explanation given as for why God chose Abraham, as for why God called Abram. 
and promise to bless him. Rather, all we see here is God calling and then God declaring his promises, saying, I will, without any regard to the person of Abram, without any regard to the type of man that he was. And the fact of the matter is, is when we study Abram's life at this point, it's a good thing because by all indications, Abram was just like his father. By all indications, he was just like his father when he was called by God, one who lived on the other side of the, the Euphrates rivers, the river and the one who was a worshiper of other gods. You see, the point is, is there was no good reason for why God had called and then promised to do these wonderful things for Abram. On the contrary, when we look at it, there was probably many reasons for why God shouldn't have called Abram, why God shouldn't have promised Abram. Nevertheless, he chose him, and he did so in accordance to his mercy, in accordance to his abundant grace. God's call upon Abram's life was an act of unmerited favor, which had nothing to do with Abram or, 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 or who Abram was or, or what Abram had or hadn't done. In fact, if God had come to Abram and had given him what he deserved, it would have been his wrath not his blessing. And the fact of the matter is, is the same is true in regards to each one of us. And the Apostle Paul, he reminds us of this saying in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. He said, As for you, you were dead in your trespasses and in sin, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of this air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. And all of us, he says, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following his desires and thoughts. Like the rest, he said, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of God's great love for us. God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. As we read on in chapter 12, verse 4, we read and it says, So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was 75 years old, and when he departed from Haran, and Abram took Sarah, or Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people whom they had acquired in Haran, and they departed to go to the land of Canaan, so they came to the land of Canaan. And Abram passed through the land to a place of Shechem. As far as the terebinth tree of Morah, and the Canaanites were in the land, and the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And he moved from there to the mountain east of Bethel. And he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called, the name, and, and called upon the name of the Lord. And so Abram journeyed on still toward the south stop there for a minute and, and look at this and it's cool because what we see is is abram was called and he went god called and abram followed and he went out of the land of the chaldeans his father's land to the land of canaan which is known as the promised land the land set aside by god for the hebrew people the land from which the messiah would be born the land from what all the families of the earth were told would be blessed. And in light of what we read here in these verses, I want to draw our attention to two things. The first is in verse 8, if you look there with me, where we're told that Abraham's home was a tent, a temporary dwelling place. And we're told that he first set up this tent between the city of Bethel on his west and the city of Ai on his east. And this is interesting, and I want to point it out to you because in the book of Hebrews in chapter 11, in verses 8 through 10, it tells us this. It says, By faith, Abram, or Abraham, obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. 
And by, by faith he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign, a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For as he waited for the city, or, or excuse me, for he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. And when we consider Abram, and when we consider the nomadic life that he and his descendants lived after being called by God, we should see how it illustrates for us a picture of the life that God calls us to live. In other words, as followers of God, we should keep in the very front of our minds the fact that we have a citizenship that is not of this earth. A citizenship in heaven. And we should be reminded of the fact that this earth is truly not our home, as we've been called by God to something better. And as we remember and understand that our time here on this earth is temporary, we should not then therefore hold on to the things of this world, the Bible tells us, that are passing away. Furthermore, we should heed the words of a Peter, the Apostle Peter, who wrote in 1 Peter chapter 2. Verses 11 and 12, and he said, Beloved, I beg you as, as sojourners, as pilgrims, to abstain from fleshly lust, which war against the soul, to have your conduct honorable among the unbeliever, that when they speak evil against you, as, as when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. So Abram was called by God, and he dwelt in a temporary dwelling place, waiting, we're told, for his eternal home. But the other thing that I want to point out is that in verse 8, we are told that Abraham chose to set his tent with, set up his tent um, with the city of Bethel on his west and with the city of Ai on his east. And in doing so, we're told that he constructed an altar to the Lord. And this is a significant thing, or we see the significance of this being revealed to us when we consider the names of these two cities. And some of you may know that Bethel means the house of God. But in contrast, Ai means the heap of ruins. And so Abram, as we read here, as he made his camp, as he set up his tent, we know that it was somewhere between the house of God and between the heap of ruins. Between the house of God and the heap of ruins. And without a doubt, we can look at this and see as we as pilgrims, we as sojourners who have a heavenly citizenship, that we should do the same. In other words, as we live on this world as pilgrims on this earth who wait for a heavenly city that is built with God, or built by God, we do so with heaven, the house of God, ever before us, and the heap of ruins, meaning the world which is passing away, and the lives that we used to live behind us. With heaven before us, and the world in our old lives behind us. I love how the Apostle Paul, as he was recalling the life that he once had before Christ, how he expressed this same thought in Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 10, when he said this. He said, But what things were gained to me, these things I have counted as loss for Jesus Christ. But what things were gained to me, in other words, he says, all that I had in the past... All of these things that I saw as profitable or at gain to me at one point in my life, he says, I've counted them all as lost for Jesus Christ. He said, yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. For I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them, he says, as rubbish, as a heap, as trash, that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, what is from the law, but that which is through faith in Jesus Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed unto his death. Paul was a man who lived with heaven before him in the heap of the world, the trash of his previous life behind him. 
And we're called to do the same. However, what we all know is unfortunately is the things that were is 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 that the unfortunate thing is is that we're often tempted to do otherwise. We're often drawn out of this place where we've set up our tent, understanding that it's a temporary dwelling place, understanding that heaven's before us and the world's behind us, that we can be tempted and drawn from that place. And what we read here in verse 10 is that the same thing happened to Abram. Because in verse 10, it says that there was now a famine in the land and that Abram went down to Egypt to dwell there. For the famine was severe in the land. You see, it's interesting to see, first of all, that there was a famine. Where was, where was the famine? The famine was in the very place that God had called Abram to go to. The famine was in the very place that God had called Abram to. The place that he had taken him to. Yet it is a reminder to us that, that, that God never promises that this temporary place that we're called to dwell is somehow going to be a bed of roses while we wait for our heavenly dwelling place. Yet as we read here, we read that as a result of this famine, as a result of the famine that Abram moved, as a result of the hardship, as a result of the trial, as a result of the suffering, Abram moved. He was moved and he left the place that God had taken him to. And it says that he went to Egypt, not just to Egypt, but he says he went down to Egypt. He descended. He descended from the place that God had called him. And this is more than a geographical statement that he went down to Egypt. And, and this is because Egypt in Scripture is always a picture of the world. And instead of calling out to God, instead of trusting in the promises that God had spoken when God said, I will. The promises that God had made to provide for his every need, we see that Abraham left. And when I read about this, I think about how sad it was that Abraham did this. How sad that Abraham had the faith to step out and go to the place that God had called him. But then when it got a little hard, Abraham went down. He left the place that God had called him to. He went to Egypt, which is a picture of the world. But when I think about how sad this is and, and was for Abram, I also think about how sad it is in my own life when I do these very same kinds of things. When instead of dwelling in the place where God has planted me, when instead of resting in the promises that God has spoken to me to provide for my every need to protect me in every way at all times. I too, in those times of famine, in those times of difficulty, in those times of trial, those, those times when, when faith is required, I too at times run to the world. But what I know is that the world at best can only offer a false sense of security, can it not? It's a false sense of security that the world offers us. And if we were just to remain in the place where God has planted us, if we stay in that place that God has called us to, to remain in Him, God promises that He'll provide our every need. That He'll protect us in, in every way. In Isaiah chapter 31, there's a, there's a cool verse here in verse 1. It says, Woe to those, and this was God, this was God speaking to the prophet Isaiah, in order to give a message to his people, the children of Israel, who as a nation often did the same thing. When they found themselves in times of trouble, they turned to their allies, to their earthly resources, rather than going to God. And God said to them, he said, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help. Woe to those who rely on horses and who trust in chariots because they are many. To those who trust in horsemen because they are very strong. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel, nor seek the Lord. Woe to those. And when we do these kinds of things, we know that there's usually not a good result. We know that there's some kind of consequence when we leave the place that God's called us to. And in verses 11 through 20, as we read out the rest of this chapter, it says, And it came to pass... When he, Abraham, was entering Egypt, that he said to his Sarai, his wife, Indeed, I know that you are a woman of beautiful countenance. 
Therefore, it will happen when the Egyptians see you that they will say, This is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. So please say that you are my sister, that it may be well with me for your sake, and that I may live because of you. So, verse 14, it was when Abram came into Egypt that the Egyptians saw the woman, that she was very beautiful. The princess of Pharaoh also saw her and commended her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken to Pharaoh's house. He treated Abraham well for her sake. He had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male and female servants, female donkeys and camels. But the Lord plagued Pharaoh in his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. And Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this that you have done to me? You did not tell me that she was your wife. Why did you say she is my sister? I might have not taken her as my wife. Now, therefore, here is your wife. Take her and go your way. So Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Guys, I'm going to go ahead and end with this this morning. The worship team wants to come up and prepare for our last song. As is exampled, I think, in the text for us here, and as I think we've all probably experienced in our own lives, when we go back to the world, and maybe you've never done that other than just for a momentary fall or a step or a stutter, but I know that each one of us knows somebody dear to us who's given their life to the Lord, who's become a follower of Jesus Christ, who stepped out in faith, and for a while they did really well. A friend, a family member, somebody dear to you who you've prayed about and prayed for for a long time, who now is in a spot that's not so good. A place where they found themselves in the world. And there's many differing degrees of this, as you well know. Like I said, we can stumble and, and at times do this in, in, in moments of weakness. But the same result is always to expect it, is that when we go back to the world, when we dwell in places that we've, been, that we've never been called to, what happens is, is that compromise will begin to enter our lives. The Bible tells us to not be unequally yoked, to not hitch ourselves to those who don't have a like mind, the mind of Christ. Because we'd be tempted to make these little compromises in our lives. And Abraham made this compromise. He compromised and he lied and he put his wife as a result in a compromising situation. And men, as, as husbands and as fathers, let this be a warning to us as we're called to lead our families. As we're called to provide and protect and to watch over them. Let it be a warning to us this morning to see that, that when we deter from God's will, when we, when, we, when we step out in places that we're not called to, that it can have an adverse effect on those whom we've been called to lead. It can put our families in compromising situations. You know, there's so much to talk about in regards to what Abram did. But the most important thing to see as we close is that in these moments, ultimately, Abram, in this last section, he lost faith. He didn't trust in God. And it was this lack of trust that took Abram out of the will of God. And in turn, what we read here is that fear came into his life. See, that's always the result. There may be consequences that come further down the road, but fear is the result of lack of faith. Fear is the result of the lack of trusting in God. And I love it when we consider biblical faith, we can know that the faith that we're called to have, according to Hebrews chapter 11, is not a faith where we just kind of muster up some kind of feeling or emotion inside of us where we go, I will believe, I will believe, I will believe. Faith, according to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, that biblical faith that Abram first exampled and would later come back to as we read on next week into this next chapter that biblical faith is the evidence of things hoped for. It's the substance of things not seen. 
In other words, it's, it's all the faithfulness of God to us in the past that carries us forward in the moment when we doubt or when we see the trial or when we see the difficulty that's before us, when the famine comes. To look back and go, I remember what God's done. I remember what God spoke to me. If you remember before this, one of the specific things is that we told us that is that when before Abram even built this altar, when he was there dwelling, it says that God came to him. God came to him. God revealed himself to him even more. Abram will have more of these encounters with God. And you and I also, as we look back over our lives from those times when God first called us, and even after we gave our life to God, our eyes were opened up, and we looked back even to those times as we read about how when Paul spoke, to those times when we were still dead in our trespasses, those times and those moments where we saw and we could then see God's hand in our lives leading us to that place where we would hear his voice to say, come follow me. And today, if you're in that spot where you're faced with a trial or a difficulty or, 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 or a so, sp- so spoken famine in your life where you're being called to exercise faith and, e- faith, and even if you're not there now, you know because of the world that we live in as pilgrims, as sojourners, that there will come a time when you will be faced with it again. We need to remember this type of faith that Abraham was called to, that we're called to, the faith that moved him and that, that was the same kind of faith that should have sustained him. A faith in what God has done. And each one of us has the greatest example as we know and remember and reflect upon the cross and the work that Jesus did there for us. And I love it when it tells us in Romans chapter chapter 8 what Paul basically says. He says, if God has done this for us, if he's already gone to this depth, this level of sacrifice and love for us, by offering His Son up on a cross for the payment of our sins, what else is there that God would not do? What else is there? So I call to you this morning as a church, as a body of believers, that we can put our faith in God today, even when the world around us appears to be falling apart. Even when our state, when our country is faced with all kinds of trials that are coming up during this election year. We can have faith that God is greater. We can trust in the fact that He knows and that He'll provide and that all of His promises that have been made to us are yes and amen. Let's pray. Father, we thankful.